Wall Street stocks build on their Christmas Eve gains, but it's not enough for a winning week. The benchmark S&P 500 falling 1.7% from last Friday's close. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. Today's Monday, December 29th. It's about 4, 10 p.m. here on the East Coast. And Adam, I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like the whole economy is just hiding out right now. Yeah, this period between Christmas and New Year's is always a sleepy news time and a sleepy business news time. But I figured after this dramatic year, I don't know, something dramatic might happen, but but it's been pretty quiet. What do you got for an indicator for us today? Well, I I think the indicator is a similar one to one we had uh, last week. Let, let's call it for round numbers, $700 billion. Uh, we finally got some semi-official notice of what President-elect Obama's uh, transition team is planning for this fiscal stimulus. Not a lot of detail, but uh, Larry Summers did write a a, 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 an op-ed piece that said that they will indeed uh, spend somewhere in the six fifty seven hundred and fifty billion dollars on um, uh, of, of fiscal stimulus. He said that they want to prioritize good projects, education, you know, things things that will actually have a real benefit um, to folks, but. There will also be some tax cuts in there, the idea being that if we see some tax cuts, maybe we'll go out and spend money right away. And while we're doing deficit spending, let's just go for it. That That is certainly the, the theory, as, as we'll discuss many times on this show, the, the, the theory underlying the president-elect's activities, which can roughly be called Keynesian. But as we'll learn, that's a complicated phrase and More to not come. so and more to come. So while we're waiting on this new president and this new stimulus stimulus package that's coming, we've been hearing from some economists who say that they're expecting more layoffs next month and maybe even some big ones. And I do get the feeling that a lot of the people I talk to on the blog are kind of hunkering down. And they're not alone. Um, we had a talk with one of our favorite credit default swap experts, Suchajit Das. And he talked about an idea. I've been hearing this a lot lately. Um, regime uncertainty. The the idea that the old financial world, the rules of the system that every investor and every person who works at a bank or a hedge fund or whatever could understood, those rules had gone away. It had all been obliterated uh, over the last few months. And the new way of doing things, he says, is not yet fully in place and may not be for a while. So you're left in this world of total uncertainty where people just don't really want to do anything because they don't know the rules of the game. I'm sort of picturing I had a friend whose dad had a dog with one of those collars that gave him an electric shock yes. every time he barked. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then he had another collar that gave him an electric shock every time he walked outside of a certain area. And I mean, this was obviously horrible and cruel. And the dog got to the point where the dog had no idea what was giving him a shock so it wasn't that he didn't bark or didn't walk outside the area. He just stood in one space and never did anything because right. he had regime uncertainty. He didn't know where the next shock was coming from. And I think that's when you suggested to Das that there's just so much wiggling around going on out there that there seems to be no sort of solid place to stand. And he said the words then, 
that we all long to hear. You're absolutely correct. And this is the problem. And this is what the current market situation and particularly the volatility creates. Now, just think about it. In the last three or four months, on average, each day, the S&P 500 has moved by three and a half percent. Now, that's extraordinary. And it's completely bewildering to people like me because you cannot make rational financial decisions under those environments. And this is part of the problem, is in trying to fix the problem and transit between this old world and the new world, you have to somehow do that without creating this volatility. And unless the volatility comes down, the person opening the corner store, the person going into business, the person making a long-term commitment to buy a house becomes extremely difficult. And, and let's narrow it down to a very individual level. If you don't know if you have a job, you don't know what your income is, how can you afford to make those types of commitments? Sachidit Das says he has no idea how long this interim period will last. Which made us think that it, it's worth, we don't do personal advice, right, Laura? We're always saying we don't do personal financial advice, but we're going to at least talk about personal financial investments right generally, now. Generally. Generally. There, there's a guy that I, that today's actually the first day I got to talk to him, but he's someone I've admired a long time, Bill Bernstein. He's a medical neurologist, um, but he's an amateur investment theorist, investment uh, uh, planner. Um, he's so good. I mean, you, you enter the world of like people who take personal investing seriously, and, and Bill Bernstein is a god. I mean, he is, he is just so well-respected. Uh, he has a book out now called a, a Splendid Exchange, which is just a beautiful history of trade in the world and how trade has worked since the beginning of time. He also has four pillars of investing. That's definitely on the list of investment classics, I think, that you'd find anywhere. He is a, um, a believer in something called passive investing, passive index investing. That's something that I have become convinced personally to, that is, is, is a good thing. And that, that, that's what I do. Not that I'm telling anyone else what to do. I'm just saying what I do. We don't tell you what to do on this show. Um, and I just thought in this time when, when the markets are so confusing, when people are wondering what to do, it's nice to hear from someone who tells you, don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Be passive. Passive investing simply means that you don't try to select the stock's that are going to have the highest returns. Uh, and the reason why you don't try to do that is, for, is, is really uh, uh, for two, because of two things. The first reason is because it can't be done. It appears that it can be done because there are people who do from time to time beat the market. But it turns out uh, that 19 times out of 20, uh, that's due to luck and not skill. And it's almost impossible to identify beforehand the one person who does indeed have skill. And by the time you've done that, it's probably too late because they're managing too much money uh, and that uh, impairs their, their performance. We all know people, maybe a lot of us are people, I certainly was one for a while, where you have a broker or a cousin or some other financial advisor who's constantly telling you, oh, you've got to invest in, you know, Bernstein Co. Biomedical. They're just amazing. They're about to explode and you get all excited and you invest. I think also, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners, and I certainly fell under this category, don't have anything to do with investing because you think of it as, oh, there's a bunch of people who know what's going to happen and how the stocks are going to perform and they're going to make it a lot of money. And I'm a schmuck. 
I'm not going to get any money at all, so I'm not even going to play that game. And you're kind of saying, no, the people who are playing that game, those are the schmucks. Precisely. Um, you know, the, first of all, the thing you have to think about uh, is if your cousin or your stockbroker really knew that Bernstein Biomedical was going to skyrocket next week, he wouldn't even tell his own mother. Uh, what he would do is he would borrow as much money as he could and then buy those shares as cheaply uh, as he could. He sure wouldn't be telling uh, you about it. He sure wouldn't be a stockbroker. Um, the, the, and if he was able to do that three times in a row, he'd be a billionaire. <laughs> precisely, precisely. In other words, if your stockbroker really knew what he was talking about, he wouldn't be a stockbroker. Uh, that's, that's the first thing to consider. The second thing to consider is this is a very expensive process. Um, so although the odds are very low that you're actually going to be able to pick stocks successfully, um, the, the odds are 100% that you will incur a lot of expenses uh, in trying uh, to do so. Um, one of the things that people don't understand is that when you buy and sell a stock, there's somebody on the other side of that transaction. And that uh, person very likely has a name like Warren Buffett or Goldman Sachs, or even worse, an insider at the company who knows this company better than any analyst uh, is going to be able uh, to, to do. And it's kind of like playing tennis uh, with an invisible partner. And what most people don't realize is that the person on the other side of the net is one of the Williams sisters. Right. They're just much better. And something like 90% of stocks that are traded are traded by large institutional investors, right? I mean, us, 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 us schmucks or whatever, us retail investors are, are a minor, minor corner of the market. Yeah, so, yeah we're, 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 we're amateurs and we're playing, we're playing against professionals. That's, that's basically the problem. Right. Although the other problem, as, as you point out, is that the professionals don't even do that well. And that's right. Even they, even they don't do terribly well. Unless they're Warren Buffett. Exactly. But Bill, right now, I went into passive in investing a few years ago when the stock market was kind of doing a steady, routine, upward move. And it sort of seemed to make sense. Hey, I, I'm not going to get special returns. I'm not going to beat the market. I'm not going to be the one genius who really makes it rich. I'm just going to get whatever the market does. If over my lifetime, the stock market grows at an average, say, 6% a year, I'm going to get 6% a year. I'm not going to beat it, but I'm not going to fall below it. But in the, and, and that was an easy philosophy to have for, for most of the last 25 years. Because aside from the blowing of the, um, of, of the high-tech bubble and, and the blowing of the bubble this year stocks just keep going up and up it seems to make sense i'm fine with regular returns but over the last few weeks we have seen just the most vicious utter collapse of the stock market i mean it, it's it is really testing my faith because it makes me feel like i i mean i know i've lost tens of thousands of dollars i'm probably gonna you know am i gonna lose more tens of thousands of dollars should I really just kind of sit by and watch this crazy roller coaster just fall down and down and down? Well, there's two ways and there's two things that you should tell yourself in a situation like this. First of all, when you say you're going to get 6%, uh, that's still 
higher uh, than you're going to get by putting your money in T-bills, um, and it's still better than you're going to do buying uh, short-term uh, bonds, at least short-term, at least short-term treasury bonds. Uh, so you're earning what is called in finance a risk premium. You're getting an extra return, and in finance there are no free lunches. The cost of getting that higher long-term return is having to deal with the uncertainty. It's, what, uh, it's what's called an equity risk premium uh, in the finance business. And you don't earn any premium uh, without having to sustain losses uh, from time to time. And this is certainly a period like that. Now, the other way that you so, make- so wait, what you're saying is if, if over my lifetime I get a decent return, what I am paying for that return is being heart sick during months like this, and I actually have some Rolaid sitting in front of me on my desk. Um, it, it's that that's the payment for that <laughs> elevated return. Yeah. If I didn't want the heart sickness, I could invest in treasury bills and get somewhere between zero and two percent return. There is no doubt about the fact that the extra, the high long-term return that you get from stocks, and trust me, you are going to earn that long, that high long-term return eventually, um, is you pay for it with stomach acid, um, and and we're finding that out now. Now the other thing, of course, to to remember is that it's called a risk premium because the premium is the highest when risks seem the highest. So when you go back and you look at financial history, what you find is that the lowest returns in fact, are obtained by investing when there's lots of blue sky and things are calm and everybody's making money. The highest returns are made uh, by those few courageous individuals who have the guts to purchase uh, things, when to purchase stocks when prices are very low and the sky is the blackest. Uh, the highest returns were earned in 1982 in the, in the recent period by investing in 1982 when uh, economic conditions actually looked worse than they look now. There was double-digit inflation. There was double-digit uh, unemployment. Um, back uh, uh, before that, the highest returns were made by investing in the depths of the Great Depression when prices were so depressed. Uh, you make money by buying low and selling high. And the only way you can buy low um, is, uh, when, is by buying when everyone else is running around uh, like a chicken with their head cut off. Now, I noticed the Wall Street Journal had a story last week that, I, I forget the exact number, we, we actually mentioned it on the podcast, that something like $70 billion in redemptions in the month of November, that, that people are pouring out of the stock market right now when, when stocks are at a very low level. They're pouring out of the stock market, yes. And, and that strikes you as a as, as a good idea? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it, it, it strikes me as you're, you're, you're generally uh, well served by doing the opposite of what the thundering herd is doing. Um, so if everybody is pouring into stocks, that's the time to be cautious. Um, if everybody is bailing out of stocks, uh, that's the time uh, when you should be thinking about buying. As, as Warren Buffett so famously said, um, it's best to be uh, greedy when others are fearful and to be fearful when others are greedy. I mean, there was Joseph Kennedy's uh, famous remark that he knew to get out of the stock market in 1929 uh, when the shoeshine boys started offering him tips. Right. And, and and that's not a glib comment, or it is a glib comment, but it has a, a, a bigger point, which is that, um, well, what is the bigger point? I'm trying to make it, but, but you'll probably make it better than well, me. Well, the, the, bigger, the bigger point is that 
when everybody is throwing money at stocks, that drives up uh, prices. Uh, when everybody is enthusiastic about stocks, there's a large amount of capital and liquidity that goes into them, and that raises their prices. So you are buying high. Um, and when you sell, uh, um, when everybody else is selling, that's when the liquidity is coming out of the market, and you are selling low. So if you follow the crowd, uh, you will have your head handed to you. And in fact, there are a lot of studies uh, that examine the behavior of people who buy and sell mutual funds. Uh, and what you find when you look at those data uh, is that the actual return that investors make in stock funds is actually less than the fund uh, gets over the long term. So if a stock fund returns, let's say, 10%, um, the average fund returns, let's say, 10% over the past 20 years, the average investor in those funds actually only got something on the order of about 5%, uh, because the average investor bought when prices were high, when everyone else was enthusiastic, and they sold at times like this. So they lost money. Thanks to Bill Bernstein for that great interview. Um, and unlike many of our guests, Bill did offer us some good news. Um, he says he's pretty confident that right now the equity risk premium, that's fancy talk for the amount of money you, you get to make if you own stocks that's more than bonds and other more safe investments, is going to be much higher over the next 15 years or so uh, because – really because everyone else is so frightened. So um, I'm, I'm not telling anyone what to do, and he's definitely not saying go out and buy any individual stocks, but, but he's saying that if you are someone who practices passive investing, if you buy some low-cost mutual funds and hold on to them for a while, you're likely to be paid for that. I mean, your, your returns will be much higher um, because there is a much higher perceived risk, and, and so... Uh, by the beautiful math of investing, more risk means more returns. In a, in a good world, if you want yes. to read, <laughs> if you want to read more about passive investing, we'll put the links to a bunch of Bill's books on the website npr.org/money. And also, um, we'll put up some books by John Bogle and others. Uh, I also really love Diehards. Org. We'll, we'll link to that. And uh, that, uh, that's it for us today. We are very thrilled to have Caitlin Kenny back with us today. She's our producer, just spent a couple weeks in having apparently just the most amazing time in Egypt. We really missed you, Caitlin. Welcome home. If this podcast ever sounds good for a second, it's because of Caitlin Kenny. You're Me. not allowed to travel anymore. <laughs> nope, that's it. That's it for you. Me, I'm Laura Conaway. Come see us on the blog. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. Run away! Run away! Run away! Run away!